welcome to our continuing 2020 educational webinar series. I am Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. And we help you manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. This webinar is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality complimentary educational resources. We create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance on places such as Google or Facebook. And you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you will find archives of our webinars. We are so pleased to have Grant Elliott, President and CEO of Ostendio, a collaborative and integrated risk management SaaS platform. Ostendio works with hundreds of companies and thousands of users to build security programs that are audit ready for complex audits such as SOC2, HITRUST, FedRAMP, and HIPAA. He is a thought leader in enterprise cybersecurity and speaks regularly about how organizations can implement effective cybersecurity programs. Elliot is the former COO and CISO of Voxiva, acquired by WellTalk an integrated messaging and patient engagement platform and former business executive at AT&T. He has over 15 years of experience developing and managing cybersecurity programs and supporting regulatory audits. Elliot is also an adjunct professor at the Pratt Institute, New York, where he teaches management theory and leadership. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the side panel of your screen. So Grant, a very warm welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Catherine. Uh, pleased to be attending. Thank you. Okay, let me start again, uh, as Catherine indicated, I'm going to do a quick overview of kind of HIPAA generally and, and a little uh, from the updates of um, uh, the current situation we're in with COVID-19 in 2020. Uh, I'll do a quick recap of HIPAA itself and the general law. Um, I spent a lot of time talking about the intent of HIPAA because I think sometimes um, people have a, a, a different perspective of why it exists. Um, moving on to, again, one of the really important aspects of conducting a risk assessment, a little bit about, again, how HIPAA is being adapted and the current timeline of COVID-19, and then we can finish with some conclusions and recommendations. So let's start off with a quick recap, right? Um, most people are familiar that um, HIPAA has been around for a while. Uh, it was originally actually signed into law back in 1996. 
uh, it stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And the reason I kind of spell that out or, or read that out is because obviously the first uh, intent of HIPAA was to really allow um, for people to gain access to their medical records. Um, when people were moving from one side of the country to another and they're going to the doctor and, and they wanted to uh, get their medical history, um, when law was implemented that required organisations or patient uh, hospitals uh, to make sure that they sent uh, people's patient regulars without, without um, a significant fee or charge, um, they found that actually uh, facilities were simply just shipping them in boxes and there was no um, security in filing, so people's very sensitive information was getting lost, was getting mislaid or, or, or was being accessible. So really, kind of HIPAA, you know, was, you know, came out with two specific reasons. One is, again, to make sure that um, people were able to maintain continuous coverage uh, if they moved from one medical provider to another, but also to try and make sure that um, they were able to kind of reduce these costs of, 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 of maintaining uh, the electronic nature of the information and the security of that information as well. Um, the main component of the HIPAA regulation came out in 1996, as I stated here, but there has been updates throughout um, during the course in terms of um, uh, guidance that's been issued by the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, but probably the biggest change that came out was again back in 2009 as part of the American uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, uh, or, or HITECH, uh, which was the, the, the component of that law. Uh, and within that, um, there were some significant changes to the existing uh, regulations that I'm going to cover. Uh, the first was uh, around the breach notification rule, and they basically made some changes around there. The second one uh, was the final omnibus rule, and that was really important because uh, they changed the concept of what a business associate uh, was and, and when you, you qualify to be a business associate. I'm going to cover a little bit more of that uh, later on. And then the last thing that really kind of came out of high tech uh, was this concept of meaningful use. And meaningful use basically being the requirement for organizations to be able to demonstrate uh, and, and digitize their information. If they uh, spent money uh, and, uh, making their information of their, their, their personal health records digital, so the electric health, uh, electronic medical health records digital, uh, then they would qualify for payments um, and that, that funded that. And, and that's obviously the big impact of HIPAA, and I'm going to again uh, dig a little bit more into that as we move forward. So, again, really kind of going into you know, what HIPAA actually does, as we mentioned. Um, the, the first rule point of HIPAA is to protect the privacy of a client's personal uh, and health information. Um, again, privacy is an important concept to this. A, a lot of the focus is around the privacy because you know, people are, are, are providing and giving over their personal information about themselves uh, uh, and, and their medical history. Um, as we've transitioned more of this information to uh, digital information, um, again, the, the idea is to make sure we want to make sure that we're, we're digitally protecting that information. And there were some other guidance in, in the law about how we simplify uh, billing and transactions. Uh, the construct of, of the law uh, is actually quite complicated, and this chart tries to kind of break it down into different elements because, again, I think most people simply think about HIPAA as just this thing that we have to sign uh, when we go to a health facility, uh, and I think people do obviously associate it with security and privacy, but there's a, a lot more to it in terms of the, the basic construct. Obviously, we talked about portability, which is type one, uh, so type one. Uh, again, there's a requirement for health facilities to actually maintain uh, uh, health information of the patients, but more importantly, 
to be able to share uh, that information with uh, as, as a patient knows from one provider to another provider to be able to share that information. Most of what we're going to talk about falls into Title II, which is uh, based around administration simplification. You can see here with the subcomponents in here of the privacy section and the security section, as well as some guidance around uh, how we basically manage uh, uh, electronic uh, data transmission uh, through that process as well. Um, and then there are other elements, obviously, to HIPAA around. We talked about medical savings accounts, uh, group health plan provisions, and, and revenue offset provisions, which we're not going to cover in this presentation. We're going to really focus into, again, the, uh, the, the administrative components. Now, I'll give you an example of some of those elements, just you know, just as a kind of high-level view of the types of things that are included before we kind of dig down into more of the intent uh, of the law. So, for example, uh, HIPAA specifies very clearly that someone has to be responsible within the organisation for managing uh, the security and, and privacy of the information. Um, that's different to a lot of security frameworks. A lot of security frameworks might uh, require responsibility to be assigned at a component level. HIPAA is actually very specific and it says that there must be a person within the organisation who has this responsibility. You need to be able to assign someone and the organisation needs to be pointed to something and requests and, and communications need to be directed to a nominated or, or, or named individual within the organisation. Um, HIPAA sets out some very broad guidance and regulations around training and so it requires training to be conducted around both HIPAA and general security and privacy, although it doesn't really do a very good job of specifying exactly what that training is, so there's a lot of room for interpretation within that. But you know, again, if you're looking to uh, operate in accordance with HIPAA, you have to demonstrate that you have a training program in place that is adjudicated to be effective. Um, obviously, there's some other things there around uh, business associates. Again, what defines a business associate, what a business associate is permitted to do. And so, you know, we're going to cover this concept of covered entities versus business associates. The covered entities are obviously the entity, and uh, for the most part, that's uh, is the preferred providing the health capability, although it also includes payment services as well. Uh, and so they rely on subcontractors in many cases to do some of those services, uh, which would potentially constitute being a business associate. And so HIPAA specifies uh, some key criteria that needs to be in place when you are subcontracting some of those services out. Um, again, the other area, verifying the identity and authority of person requesting PHI. Some of these things sound like no-brainers, and, and they are pretty straightforward, but they, they have to be specified in the law. Um, and so the idea really is that, you know, you, you know there are very specific guidelines around who can suggest your information. So again, obviously a patient can request their own information. You have to make sure that you uh, you take appropriate actions to, to ensure that that is the person that's asking it. There are also legal reasons that, for example, you know the police or, or, or the government uh, can ask for that information again if they have appropriate uh, legal uh, requirements to do so. And so a lot of that is going to specify out both in the, in, in the law itself as well as some of the uh, documents that you put in place um, with the various entities involved. Um, being able to communicate effectively uh, with patients and with stakeholders around what your privacy policies actually are, making sure that information is available and on a current basis, uh, again, is important and specified in the law and making sure that's done in a reasonable period of time. And so there, I'm not going to go through all of these, you can read them yourself, but you can see there, there, there are many, many more uh, reasons that this or elements than this within the law itself. And so it's pretty comprehensive in terms of a lot of the areas that it covers, albeit you can see 
some of the directives themselves, while they're comprehensive in nature in terms of scope, um, sometimes leave a lot to be desired in terms of the detail that's involved uh, in, in, in meeting that particular requirement. Fundamentally, the most important aspect to take away here, though, is you know when we think about you know who does this apply to, uh, we can have a broad conversation about you know what a covered entity is, what a business associate is, but you know if you find yourself within this environment, uh, everyone has to follow HIPAA. There are no exemptions, right? I, I used to get asked the question sometimes, can you opt out of HIPAA, right? And the interesting thing about this regulation per se is that it defines the situation that you find yourself in. And if the situation qualifies for HIPAA to be applicable, then you know, it, it applies. There is no way you know, an individual can sign a waiver to basically say, hey, you know, I don't want HIPAA to apply to my, my information. An organization can, you know, write legal exemptions into their, 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 their contracts to basically say, hey, HIPAA doesn't apply to us if it does. Uh, employees, uh, subcontractors uh, can't uh, say that, hey, you know, we, we, we don't agree that we fit in this situation, therefore it doesn't apply to us. The interesting thing about HIPAA is, and, and, and this was made even more clear uh, as part of the, the high-tech uh, uh, final omnibus rule, is that you know, if you operate in line with HIPAA, if the government determines based on the way that you, uh, you're operating that HIPAA applies, then HIPAA applies. It really doesn't matter what type of contractual documentation. And I'm going to cover that in a little bit more detail uh, further down the line. So, you know, who is impacted? And, and this is obviously a kind of high-level uh, element. So, um, first of all, you know, we talked about healthcare providers, so you know, hospitals, uh, doctor surgeries, you know, pretty much any provider of some form of medical, psychiatric, or other health service. Um, again, if they're providing some level of care, is a good way to look at this, uh, then they're likely to be covered. Obviously, that care has to include the concept of uh, health information, um, and you know. Invariably does, and in that situation, then obviously HIPAA um, uh, will apply. Uh, health plans, so insurance services, again, because they're involved uh, and, and they have to have access to uh, information around uh, treatment, diagnosis, etc., they have a lot of sensitive health information, and again, so they're covered uh, within HIPAA as well. And then cleaning houses, right, you know, billing exchange, uh, billing companies, etc., lots of other third party organizations. Uh, that again are effectively processing um, healthcare information. Again, they're applicable. And generally speaking, these three elements are what you're going to define as a covered entity. Again, they're the organization that's actually providing the direct service. And then the third part, or so the fourth part here is business associates uh, and trading partners. And again, for the most part, think of them as uh, subcontractors to the covered entity. They are organizations, they might provide translation services, they might provide cleaning services, and they might provide some sort of technology capability or solution on behalf of the, uh, the covered entity. And again, we're going to start getting into a little bit of technical terms here. It really is, you, you only become a business associate if you are actually performing that task or that transaction on behalf of a covered entity. A business associate cannot exist in its own right. Uh, you can't become a business associate if you're not doing work for a covered entity. If you're actually providing care, then you're not a business associate, you're a covered entity. But if you're performing on behalf of the covered entity, uh, then you're potentially a business associate, depending on what you're doing. So let's kind of build into the business associate part a little bit more, right? Again, as I said, it's a personal entity to whom a covered entity discloses PHI um, uh, to perform the function behalf. Now, I want to break that down a bit because 
this is a very specific definition here, right? Uh, if the entity, if the, if the organization is doing something on behalf of the covered entity that does not involve uh, the disclosure or management of PHI, they are technically not a business associate. Now, that might seem a bit strange because we have this, uh, used to have this exact, uh, this saying, when you're a hammer in the world, uh, everything looks a lot like a nail, and it's, it's not uncommon for covered entities, for uh, providers, for, for payers, etc., to require all of their subcontractors to sign a business associate agreement. Uh, that's not necessarily because the, the organization is performing as a business associate, just typically that can be organizational and structurally that the covered entity just wants to treat all vendors exactly the same. The, the, the same way. And so when you're in that situation, um, you know, it's important to understand whether you are actually operating uh, as a business associate. And again, typically if you look at, are they sharing uh, protected health information? Are they sharing information about patient, um, patient health treatments or payment information? And are you doing something uh, with that data in conjunction with that covered entity? And if you are, the likelihood is you are a, 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 a business associate. And again, so you can see some examples of um, uh, organizations that I might apply to, lawyers, accounting consultants, accrediting agencies. What we're seeing at the moment is an explosion of tech companies kind of falling into this category, right? You know, a lot of technology companies, whether they're providing SaaS services, you know, we're going to talk a little bit later about um, remote uh, treatment services, et cetera, telehealth. Uh, and so a lot of those organizations now fit into this kind of business associate. Again, to be clear, must have a contract obliging them to safeguard protect health information. This is a bit of a misleading statement here because again, when uh, uh, high tech came out and the final owner's rule, um, some of the language in there uh, basically means that if you're performing the act, right, to do something um, and you have, a, you know, you, 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 you're licensed a contract to do X, when they talk about must have a contract that obliges them to safeguard protection, what they're basically saying is you should have a business associate agreement in place here. But I just do want to point out the absence of having a formal business associate agreement in place does not mean that the business associate is not a business associate and does not mean that they're not performing as a business associate. And more importantly, does not mean that they're not uh, liable to the federal government. Because again, the big thing that changed uh, in, in 2013 was uh, the federal government basically said that covered entities uh, obviously will continue to be responsible to them, but business associates themselves uh, become responsible to the federal government as well, right? Albeit the, the responsibility typically flows through the covered entity. Um, whereas prior to 2013, a business associate was only commercially liable to the covered entity. So the covered entity had responsibility to write a business associate agreement but the covered entity, if they breached that business associate agreement, was responsible to the covered entity, not necessarily to the federal government. And obviously that changed in 2013. So again, if you're a business associate and you fail to fulfill the requirements within your BA, or indeed you actually simply fail to fulfill the requirements as determined by HIPAA, you can again be uh, uh, um, uh, penalized by the federal government, not just the, the covered entity themselves. Uh, and again, that's an important point. So even if you do not sign a business associate, and we sometimes see this happening, right? Covered entities, for whatever reason, through an administrative mistake or or through not realizing, uh, will enter into contracts or, or, or services with a third party, and for whatever reason, a business associate agreement hasn't been signed. It, in some respects, it doesn't matter because, again, if you're performing in the role of a business associate, you are federally liable either way. Uh, now. Obviously, the business associate agreement helps to lay out some of that 
and clarify some of those requirements for you, uh, but you know, don't think that by not having a BA that you're off the hook. So let's talk a little bit about a business associate contract, um, uh, because I, I think this is um, a, a really important concept here, right? You know, obviously they refer to business associate agreement. Um, the most important thing, and I, I deliberately changed the word here to call it a business associate contract, because I, I really want people to understand this is a contract. Right? And, and the reason I say that is even though there's kind of federal components of what we're talking about here, when you sign as a, as a business associate, when you sign a business associate agreement, you are signing a legal contract. So anything that's included within that contract forms part of any supply agreement and, and, and framework you have. And OCR don't actually provide business associate agreement templates, rather they provide guidance about what should be included within a business associate agreement. That might sound like I'm splitting hairs there, but you're not going to go to the OCR website and download a BAA template. They're going to basically specify, and the regulation specifies, you need to include these elements within your business associate agreement. The reason that's um, important and somewhat confusing is because it means that most of the time when you receive business associate agreements from different entities, they're going to be a lot bit different. Um, most of the time, and in my experience, most of the time they generally follow the guidance that's provided by uh, OCR in terms of what should be within the, the, the business associate agreement. However, sometimes some organizations will go a little bit beyond that. Uh, and again, going to my point, this is a legal contract. So if the covered entity actually adds additional clauses in there that says that you should do X, Y, or Z, and X or Y, Z is not covered under uh, HIPAA. If you sign that business associate agreement, you still have to do X, Y, and Z because you're, you're not federally liable to do that, but you're commercially required to do that. I, I, I regularly have to review business associate agreements and I'll often see a significant amount of overreach in business associate agreements. It's not uncommon for organizations to actually use uh, the business associate agreement to add incremental elements to the supply agreement. So, for example, um, typically the breach notification period requires 60 days for an organization to report a breach. Um, uh, oftentimes, you'll find that the uh, covered entity writes in that they require their, um, their business associate to do that within 24 hours or 72 hours. Again, there's nothing in the federal guidelines or laws that require a business associate to report a breach or an incident uh, within 24 or, or, or 48 or 72 hours, they should be reporting as quickly as they reasonably can and their systems allow them to. And so the fact that a covered entity requires them to do it within a time period is not a federal requirement, it's a contractual requirement. And if you sign that, then you're stipulating from a legal perspective that you will meet that particular obligation. Oftentimes, sometimes I also see that uh, organizations will actually write um, uh, opt-out uh, clauses within to a business associate agreement. So they'll have some sort of language in there uh, that will A, say this business associate agreement will trump any clause within the master services agreement because again it's a federal requirement we have a business associate agreement. But then they'll also write uh, uh, termination notifications uh, for, for cause and for without cause within a business associate agreement. Uh, and again if you sign that agreement because it's a legal contract that is not part of the requirements within um, uh, within the, the, the HIPAA regulations, but it's a contract, so you're theoretically potentially giving your customer the opportunity to uh, actually terminate your, your entire agreement for reasons out with HIPAA as well. So I only offer that out to basically say and understand that you know 
because you know the government doesn't allow you to download templates, they don't provide templates, they provide guidelines. When you're reviewing a business associate agreement, it's important to make sure that you're reviewing it in accordance with those, those government uh, guidelines. Typically, what I look for when I'm reviewing business associate agreements, uh, I'll, I'll look for language that basically says, as defined in CFR 45, whatever. And oftentimes, as long as the agreement consistently refers to the legal definitions set out by, uh, by, by, by OCR and through the HIPAA regulations, most of the times you're going to find that that agreement probably is, is, is going to be pretty, pretty innocent and aligned with its intent. Uh, but if you, again, see lots of additional definitions in there, really kind of look through for uh, incremental clauses in there uh, that are not required as part of the BA. And again, sometimes that can be a sign that the, the organization is using a, you know, a, a little bit of discretion and overreach within that agreement. Okay, so again, uh, I think we've covered uh, most of this uh, you know, in terms of the business associate obligations. So again, you know, it must, you know, business associates must not use or disclose protected health information. I mean, that's the whole point of it. One thing I will clarify here is protected health information or PHI is a defined term, right? And so, and this is this gets a little bit technical here in the sense that when people talk about PHI, PHI can only exist in the realm of a covered entity and business associate agreement or in the realm of delivering health information. If you're providing some some type of private service, right, you're not a covered entity, uh, and you have uh, uh, sensitive health information, on the, you know, even a personally identifiable health information, right? That is not protected health information. PHI, protected health information, is, is, a, is a defined term within, uh, within HIPAA, and it means specifically information uh, that uh, is, is, is obviously identifiable, um, uh, and it's protected under the regulations of HIPAA. And so just understand that, you know, again, PHI does not apply in all situations, but it does apply, again, if it's a covered entity providing uh, health-related services or a business associate on behalf of the health service. But again, there are many other situations where people tend to use the term PHI, um, but th that's not the appropriate term to be used. By definition, PHI can only be used. And so if you're signing something and it uses the term PHI, just be careful because, again, that has connotations related to HIPAA. Again, there's various different elements here, as you can see here, in terms of you know why we're going to do it. You know, obviously we're safeguarding and proper use. Uh, we're trying to make sure the subcontractors do the same. Uh, we also, you know, requirements are making sure that individuals have access to that information, the ability to uh, you know get information removed uh, after use if, if required. Um, and again, the above can be true, as I mentioned, whether you sign a BA or not. Right? Again, if you're operating in this business associate uh, function, whether you sign a business associate agreement. If you're performing the operation as we described, you have an obligation to protect PHI in line with, um, uh, in line with uh, uh, the, the requirements set out in, in HIPAA. Okay, so let's let's go through some some, some other elements because I think this is important. First of all, um, HIPAA is not a regulate. So HIPAA as a regulation is not a standard, right? And that's important for a couple of reasons. One. Uh, HIPAA has been written by lawmakers. It's not been written. It was never written by security professionals, and you can see that as you read through the different regulations. Uh, they're very high level many times. My favourite example is, is the one that I talked about earlier on, which is training. Uh, the, the, the language goes something around the line: you have to provide reasonable training on a routine basis for your staff. 
but it doesn't specify how often that training needs to be. It doesn't specify uh, or go into great detail about the type of training you have to perform. It simply just defines it as reasonable training. So what is reasonable training? And that's obviously open to interpretation. A lot of organizations we work with, you know, uh, you know, think reasonable training as, um, as some sort of annual HIPAA training, maybe some training around the privacy rule, the security rule, some basic security training, etc. Um, and that seems to have kind of evolved to some sort of norm uh, or conventional norm. Uh, but there is nothing in the regulation that specifies that HIPAA, the training should be annual. It simply says it's good regular. Now, I would argue that um, it'd be very difficult for you to argue, uh, for, for you to make the, the case that you're know, doing any less than annually uh, was reasonable, especially given uh, the focus on uh, security vulnerabilities today and, and, and external breaches, etc. Uh, but I'd also argue. Uh, that um, organizations should be doing it a lot more often uh, than, uh, than annually. Again, if I'm doing a security audit for an organization, I'm expecting them to be training uh, their organization on security and privacy on a much more routine basis, like probably monthly, um, because again, there's so much uh, that needs to be trained. And, you know, everything from how you handle data to how you share information, how you basically authorize the receipt of information to you know, phishing attacks. You know, there, there, there's, there's a lot of information that organizations should be training the staff to make sure that they're protecting information. And it's very difficult to try and cram all that into a, kind of a two-hour, uh, once-a-year training program. So yeah, I would not personally think that once-a-year training is reasonable, but again, many organizations, that's kind of the standard that they, that they go for. The second thing here is, there is no such thing as being HIPAA compliant. Um, you see all the time, um, and we see at events, you know, you go to the website. Um, if you actually even just do a Google search for um, HIPAA compliant, I actually even see organizations issuing press releases saying that they're HIPAA compliant. There is no certification authority for HIPAA. Uh, you can absolutely go to an audit firm and you can ask them to conduct some form of audit that allows them to give you an opinion as to you know, how well you're operating in line with HIPAA. And they will certainly do that. They will, they will offer you an opinion letter. But they do not have the authority to actually say that you're HIPAA compliant. They can simply say that, you know, based on what we see, in our opinion, they're operating in line or not, as the case may be with HIPAA. So oftentimes, you know, we, from my perspective, if I see an organization that actually promotes themselves as being HIPAA compliant, if that's their primary vehicle for promoting uh, their security program, I'll, I'll go exactly the opposite direction because if they genuinely believe that being HIPAA compliant or saying that they're HIPAA compliant uh, in some way is, is seen as a positive, it, it, it demonstrates to me that they don't understand the construct of HIPAA and that they don't understand the construct of security and privacy. Um, really what we see is organizations who are doing security and privacy well will find another uh, standard uh, or framework that they can use uh, in order to better assess whether they're actually meeting that benchmark, right? Again, as we said, HIPAA is a set of regulations uh, that, again, are very, very vague, and so it's very difficult to know whether you've actually met the specific uh, interpretation of that, that regulation. Whereas if you look at other frameworks like you know, NIST, uh, CSF, or 800-171, ISO 27001, SOC2, Trust. There are other frameworks out there that do a much better job at, at you know, clearly defining what you need to do in order to meet that particular standard. 
And so if an organization really is trying to demonstrate that they're getting where they want, you know, it's a bit like going on a, a, on a journey, right? You know, and not setting an end destination. Or if you set an end destination, it's so vague and it's sort of like, you know, I, I want to travel from the East Coast to the West Coast. Well, you sort of generally head out of the way and you've no idea whether or not you're actually uh, uh, heading in the right direction or whether you're actually going to arrive there or not. But at least in the definition of setting the West Coast, you're saying, well, if I get to the West Coast, I, I, can, I can put a check mark on it because we, we have a definition of what the West Coast actually is. Um, so I, again, HIPAA itself is not as clear from that perspective. Really, an organization uh, should be focusing on a standard. Now, you can do with certain frameworks like SOC2 and HITRUST, you can actually ensure that uh, a framework or regulation like HIPAA is within scope. And so if you go, and HITRUST was specifically created uh, as a framework because of the inefficiencies or, or, or the, the insufficiency of a framework like uh, a regulation like HIPAA. And so again, all of these frameworks and all of these standards have their limits. And again, just because you get certification in any does not in itself mean that you're not vulnerable to some form of security breach, but you're much more likely to have implemented effective and sufficient security and privacy uh, and, and controls if you follow uh, a defined standard uh, or a defined framework rather than relying on a regulation like HIPAA. And the same really applies to you know, not just HIPAA, but things like GDPR, CCPA, anything that has a regulation that gives broad direction is very difficult for you to demonstrate that you're meeting that specific requirement without a significant level of opinion. And that's why many of these frameworks exist, because again, they allow you to have a much more measurable way of doing that. So again, my advice to you is, again, if you have um, organizations that are saying they're HIPAA compliant, um, again, there is no such thing. The definition itself doesn't actually mean anything. And I would you know, ask you to question them because if, they're, if, if they believe that it does, then that probably actually speaks to their lack of knowledge of the subject. So what is the point of HIPAA then? Right? Again, if we're basically saying, why even go through the trouble? Well, look, the, the, the intent of HIPAA is obviously, as I mentioned, to make sure that organizations are levying some sort of investment in security generally. right? Um, the whole point of it is because, as I mentioned before, without a regulation like HIPAA, organizations are left their own uh, uh, self-motivation as to whether they actually want to do anything. So HIPAA does at least provide a primary motivation to organizations to make sure that they are doing what they should be doing to at least align with the regulations that they set out. Now, the first step of this, and this goes to the same point I mentioned about a standard, the first step of this is, well, how do we know how we're performing? Um, so OCR are very clear. One of the key things that they specify is every organization must go through a, 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 some form of a, a risk assessment. Um, and, and this is important because, again, you know, having dealt with uh, OCR on many, many occasions, you know, they're, they're not out there to try and penalize companies. You know, no, you know, it's not a politically positive thing to have a whole bunch of hospitals and health systems closed down because they're not operating in line with HIPAA. That's not really what OCR are trying to do with their, 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 their enforcement. Um, they're trying to make sure that organizations are operating um, in, a, in a responsible way. Right? Step one to that is you don't know what you need to do until you've done some form of assessment. So you know, the OCR do actually provide a basic HIPAA risk assessment tool on their website, and they've defined the, the specific steps that you should follow. Again, there's all the different regulations are there, and there's a series of uh, questions and controls that you can follow through on the risk assessment tool. And the idea really here is that you know, you're motivated to understand what gaps you might have against the regulations with a view to addressing them. Now, 
Again, precedent often becomes a driver in terms of the types of enforcement actions that are taken by OCR. And what we can see from the enforcement actions that OCR have taken over the last few years is the one thing that they will typically call out if you want to get yourself on the wrong side of, 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 of OCR is not if you have gaps within your HIPAA program. It's if you've never even conducted a risk assessment, then how do you even know how close you are to operating in line with HIPAA? And so they'll regularly come across organizations and when they've had some sort of breach or there's been some sort of investigation and they'll go and do a, 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 a further investigation to the organization and they find that the organization hasn't even conducted a risk assessment to understand what they have in place, what they don't have in place. You know, OCR basically view that as an egregious non-compliance because that doesn't even show effort. If you've at least done a risk assessment and you've identified that you have gaps within your program and you can at least demonstrate that you're working towards filling those gaps, obviously you're still going to have to cover the costs of remediation and notification of the patient, but you're less likely to get a significant fine from OCR because they at least understand you're moving in the right direction. But if you haven't even conducted a risk assessment, then it's very difficult for you to make an argument to say that you are trying to be in, 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 to operate in accordance with the HIPAA regulations. So again, it's important to understand, you know, if you if you do nothing else, make sure that your organization has conducted a risk assessment. Now, again, once you've done that, it's going to identify gaps, and you obviously want to put a plan in place to try and remediate those gaps. But you don't think that you know sticking your head in the sand and that the whole argument of I didn't know is going to save you because again OCR have demonstrated time and time again that that is not going to be an excuse. Now importantly don't then think let me just go to the OCR website download the risk assessment tool and if I do that then I'm good. Even their own website and their own tool you know, carries a, 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 a disclaimer that says you know just conducting this risk assessment in itself does not mean that you're going to be HIPAA compliant because again they, they, they view this in the rearview mirror based on a subsequent investigation. So again, this is just the first step and it's important that you follow that through and that you, again, follow the, the, the risk assessment on their tool. But again, my recommendation to you, again, is pick a standard or, or, or a framework that is more complete and then build HIPAA into scope and you're much more likely to have a, a more complete security program in place. And just to kind of reiterate that point, now, HIPAA requires that covered entities and business associates conduct a risk assessment of their healthcare organization. So while you know, we talk about the requirement to conduct training, again, that's very binary. You, you have to do it if you can't demonstrate you're doing it. Likewise, here with the risk assessment, if you can't demonstrate that you've conducted the risk assessment, that clearly is an egregious breach of the, of the regulation. Okay, let's kind of just shift gears a little bit because obviously we are also going through unprecedented times and, you know, uh, while obviously organizations want to operate uh, in compliance uh, with, with, uh, with HIPAA, you know, like any kind of legislative uh, 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 guidance or any kind of legislative act, um, you know, HIPAA, as, as we talked about, was, was originally put into place in 1996. You know, you go back to, you know, what type of equipment we had in place back then, you know, what the internet was like back then, you know, uh, you know, the iPhone didn't even exist back then, you know, iPads. So, so the whole concept of telehealth, even back then, really was, was, was not, it was really just a concept and an idea at that particular point in time. Uh, technology has evolved significantly since, uh, even if you take into 2013, when we unfortunately come in for, for high tech, a lot has changed in that time as well. And so the regulation is trying to adapt and understand um, um, to you know, this, this ongoing technology, digitization of information. Um, what's happened obviously in the last couple of months with COVID-19 is we've gone through this unprecedented event where 
the demand for remote services um, has has gone through the roof. Now I think that you know, you know, as an industry, the healthcare industry has you know talked for long for a long time about remote services, but it's been a slow transition. You know, the healthcare industry is not the fastest adopting new technology, hence why they had to incentivise digitisation through things like meaningful use. But certainly, this drive for telehealth has is basically kind of put it into the spotlight, and so. Um, rather than um, try and come out with um, you know, updated laws and regulations regards to telehealth, OCR has issued guidance uh, and uh, issued some enforcement discretion that basically uh, means that they're not going to um, uh, that they're going to kind of turn a blind eye uh, to possibly some uh, 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 you know organisations not following a lot of the disclosure information. Again, there are certain conditions that they've laid that out too. So again. You know, they want the ability for organisations to be able to reach out to former patients. Again, we can't do contact tracing um, and, and the like if we don't have the right to reach back to people, whether they uh, give consent or not. Uh, again, they, it's really important that we have an ability uh, to share information uh, in the current situation, because again, uh, you know, that's between obviously uh, local and, 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 and federal authorities as well as uh, some uh, some business associates who have basically managed the components here as part of this. And then just the whole public health component around well, how much information do we share uh, with the media and to get the message out. And again, there's been guidance issued on all those different areas, again, in a response to the kind of very unprecedented time we're going through. Um, the result of that has been we've seen an explosion in the adoption of telehealth, as you can see. Um, time will tell as to how we basically uh, evolve that. Uh, clearly, I think what we've seen is that um, uh, the, the regulations were probably moving too slow in the past, and there always is a correction, so maybe there, some of the, the, the relaxation might be a little bit too dramatic right now, and they'll eventually get that right. Uh, we have to determine what happens when the immediate pressing requirement, uh, hopefully, uh, dissipates at some point in the not too distant future. Um, there's a lot of questions around um, what payment should be for these types of services. You know, uh, what the payment rate should be, uh, how often people should be paid, uh, you know, what's covered within uh, these services, uh, and at what rate, etc. And again, you know, the, the thing that I think a lot of people always uh, forget about is, well, we have a federal law. With regards to HIPAA, there are lots of state and regional variations to that as well, uh, and so all of those have to be taken into account as well uh, when we're kind of looking at the longer-term impact of, of this. Uh, the good news is, I think that you know uh, that clearly OCR have demonstrated a, a willingness to be flexible uh, again because they see the value and the merit of uh, remote services, which are, are clearly a necessary tool in today's environment. Um, and hopefully this is going to drive some uh, updates and some changes and some uh, modernization to some of the guidelines we have in place right now. Okay, uh, again, just this is a, a statement that came out uh, from OCR, uh, I think in March. Uh, we are empowering medical providers to serve patients wherever they are during this national public health emergency. We're especially concerned about reaching those at risk, most at risk, including older persons and persons with disabilities. So, you know, they're driving this for the right reason. And it's important that they are flexible as we obviously start to do things that we've really not done in any scalable way before. So let me kind of finish up uh, just with uh, you know a couple of uh, uh, observations um, you know, and takeaways that you can take away from the slide presentation. Uh, first of all, HIPAA is the law, right? We 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 don't get around you know um, choosing uh, to follow it. It's not optional. Uh, we have to apply to it um, for for good or for bad. Uh, the regulation exists. 
Um, you know, many people might argue uh, that it's overbearing. Some people might argue it doesn't go far enough. I, I, I personally think in this kind of data-centric world we live in, um, the challenge with HIPAA is not that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's there's no, I don't think there's an overreach in it. I, I just think it needs to be more specific or it probably should tie more directly to uh, some uh, recognized industry standards. Um, OCR specifically, um, again, when they're looking at HIPAA, uh, tend to review to view compliance in the rear view mirror. What I mean by that is you can't go to OCR and say, hey, can you conduct a, 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 an assessment or an audit for me? Um, well, OCR have done uh, uh, routine audits uh, over the past. They're, they're, they're again, they're, they're very few and, and frequent. Uh, they, uh, they tend to be desktop audits, so they're reviewing data. They're not actually coming in like you would do with a security audit and kicking the tires and shaking the trees, so to speak. Um, what they will typically do is they will investigate once a breach or a report has been made. And so they, they typically do retrospective investigations into situations and events. And in that situation or event, they will tell you whether or not they believe that you've operated in line with, with HIPAA or whether you haven't. And that's important when you think about, we talked earlier on about training, if you believe that you're operating in line with uh, HIPAA regulations because you're conducting annual training and you're training your staff and you're giving them that two hour, once a year training, and then you have a major breach and have a come in and find out that your staff don't seem to be knowledgeable enough uh, in terms of how they should be operating against HIPAA and general security provisions, they can still quite legitimately come back to you and say your training program is ineffective. So even though you thought you were doing it in line with HIPAA, they can very legitimately come back and say that it's nowhere near sufficient as well and you can be penalized for, for, for that reason as well. Um, really from my perspective as well, as I mentioned before, any organization that has their primary security or privacy obligation to be HIPAA compliant um, really is, is, is showing a, a lack of understanding of what's required to build a security program, right? It really is not sufficient, right? Again, it's not defined, as I talked about earlier on, um, but oftentimes it doesn't cover enough uh, control areas uh, and it doesn't require the organization to do uh, enough in order to, uh, to, to, to build effective security. Again, it's a, it's a reasonably arcane set of regulations that hasn't been defined, defined for today's uh, very technically sophisticated cloud-based, mobile-based world and so it really is important that organizations pick a more robust and up-to-date security framework again they can build HIPAA into that uh, so again you know we shouldn't be looking at HIPAA as a primary driver and, and to the same point if you if you really think that the only thing you can shout about is that you're HIPAA compliant um, then that probably actually is more of a negative uh, for your organization uh, than a positive right uh, again picky framework around it it doesn't really matter which one there's pros and cons with them all you know, if you're in the healthcare industry, obviously there's a lot uh, of organisations driving through high trust uh, or, or, or SOC2, which has various different um, uh, trust categories. Again, pick one and then build on it. Uh, more often than not, you're going to find that you actually have to be compliant to multiple frameworks. Again, some customers, and obviously HIPAA, you have to you have to meet the the, the obligations there for, for federal reasons. But many of the states uh, have their own uh, enhancements or changes. Uh, we're already seeing on the privacy side things like you know CCPA um, and GDPR in, in, in Europe. Um, and then obviously your customers themselves. You know, you may have a customer that requires uh, you to meet a, a specific like NIST CSF or, or some other. Uh, a requirement that they have that's specific to them. So it's unusual for an organization these days to simply just have a singular focus on one framework. 
And so it's important you understand how these different uh, requirements fit together and work together. And if you're operating in different countries, again, you know, uh, you know, Canada's obviously get PIPA. Uh, you go to South America. You go to uh, uh, again, you know, Asia, uh, Australia. They all have different variations of versions of their own kind of security and privacy requirements as well. And again, because this then becomes more complicated, you probably want to use some sort of tool or some sort of capability to help guide this. Again, you don't want to have to be building this five different times. So if you were to use a technology or a tool like the Stendo MyVCM platform, you can actually manage uh, your, your overall compliance and line with regulations like HIPAA, as well as many other security and privacy standards and regulations. So just a very quick promotion in terms of what a Stendo MyVCM is an integrated risk management platform. It allows organizations to build out their security program. So it gives them the template for building this out against over 100 standards and regulations globally. It then gives the organization the, the, the way to operate that so they can operate their policies, their procedures, their assets, their people, their vendors, uh, you know, incident management response, etc. All the component pieces that you need to run an effective security privacy program, you can manage and operate within uh, the MyVCM platform. And then finally, because we have to showcase this out to, you know, you know, we have to show it to our executive team, to our board, uh, to auditors, to the government, there's lots of different people uh, that obviously need to see how effective you are being and operating against those specific frameworks. And again, maybe I want to run a HIPAA report, or I want to run a SOC 2 report or a high trust report. Again, I want to be able to demonstrate that as an organization, how well am I performing against the hundreds of controls that, that I'm, as an organization, having to meet. Right? You know, every action within the platform is documented, every process is automated. Again, you uh, are able to use the platform across the entire organization. And the whole reason for doing it is not just the uh, additional flexibility and capability of the tool, but it's going to actually save you significant time. You no, no longer manage things in spreadsheets, no longer ha having to report uh, various you know, different API tools and pull information from lots of different resources one platform to manage everything across your employees, your vendors, and uh, your entire organization. Uh, so that's kind of really the main thing I wanted to cover today. Uh, now I'm going to open it up for any questions, if, if anyone has any questions on any of the things I've covered. Well, thank you so much, Grant. Uh, that was a really wonderful and informative presentation. So thank you very much for that. We do have a few questions that have come in. And uh, the first one is this here. Um, it says, my covered entity customer is ask, asking me to sign a BAA, a, a business associate agreement, even though I do not have access to PHI. What should I do in this situation? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. And, and, and I think the first thing to clarify is, again, whether you do or whether you don't. As I mentioned earlier on, uh, PHI is a technical term. So, you know, uh, you either do have access to protected health information or you don't. What I sometimes find, though, is that some organizations, when they say that they don't have access to it, what they mean is their organization has access to it, but they don't themselves have access to it. So maybe uh, they believe that the information is fully encrypted and their, their core system and the employees generally don't have access to it. We're really kind of define this, and you know, access to, to any kind of sensitive data can really be defined in three different ways. There's what we call you know, actual access, which is you know, access that you have in the routine basis of your business. So uh, as an employee or as a, as a user within the system, I'm going to see and access uh, uh, protected health information in the general uh, routine run of my day. 
you know, I can be a doctor, I can be a nurse, I can be uh, someone who's basically providing patient services and guidances to patients. So, so in that kind of use case, it's pretty clear that I have general access. Then we have what we call uh, theoretical access. And the theoretical access is the one, especially if you're a tech company, that I come across the most, which is um, I don't personally have access to, to PHI. Uh, we, we do manage it on behalf of the client, but we don't see it. We, no one has access to it. And the, the example I like to give there about theoretical access is if I'm the CEO of an organization and the systems are designed, that means that I can't go into any system and actually, you know, through my user profile, see that information, then I don't have direct day-to-day -day access to PHI. But as the CEO, I could ask someone in my tech team to say, hey, can you give me that information? Can you give me access to that information? Again, I'm not supposed to have access to it necessarily, but because that's, uh, that, that person is a subordinate, the likelihood is they're going to do what I ask them to do. I have authority over them. So I could theoretically gain access to the information. And, and the theoretical access is the one that normally most people overlook. If you can theoretically find a way to access that information because of your authority, because of your technology, again, then you have theoretical access to PHI. You still have access and you have to manage it that way. And then the last one we, is, is really incidental uh, uh, PHI. Again, we see situations where subcontractors and business associates say, well, they're not supposed to give me access to the information. Um, but if it can be foreseen that through the process of uh, uh, going about your day-to-day, -day, that there are situations where that information can be foreseen to be sent to you, um, then again, you have potentially what's called incidental access to PHI. So say, for example, you have a ticketing system and you make it very clear in your ticketing system that people should not upload PHI, but you find through the course of time that you know, every now and then someone uploads a file or an attachment and PHI exists within that, right? Again, if you can foresee that that is likely to happen, then you have to assume that you have incidental access to PHI. Now, it, it, Whilst that still has this binary concept of having access to PHI versus not having access to PHI, what you have to do from a risk management perspective varies significantly. Again, I have to put more, um, uh, more, 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 more protections in place if I have routine and regular access to PHI than probably if I do if I have theoretical access or if I have incidental. Again, if I have theoretical access, I can write policies and procedures that say, hey, listen, all employees understand who should have access, who should have. And these resources can legitimately say to the the CEO, no, I'm not allowed to give you that access. But those policies, procedures, and enforcements have to be in place. Likewise, with incidental, you know, the the the, the volume of incident records that you're likely to access are going to be significantly lower. So again, the implications are going to be lower. So again, the risk profile becomes a lot less as well. So again, it's really important to understand that uh, you know when you define, do I have access to PHI? You're answering those questions. And and at the end of the day, as I mentioned before. You know, this is really binary, right? You either do or you don't, right? And so actually, if you sign a business associate agreement, and as I talked about earlier on, that business associate agreement is directly related to PHI, theoretically, because you're making a commitment to something you don't have, you can theoretically promise whatever you want. I mean, I'm sure lawyers are probably going to disagree with that because they're not going to want you to sign extra documentation that's unnecessary. But again, if you're signing a business associate agreement that refers specifically to PHI, and you're 100% confident you're never going to have PHI, then there's an argument that says that you know, you're know you not actually signing up to any additional liability. Hmm. Okay, very, very good. Um, then we have another question here. It says, how do I know if I have done enough to be HIPAA compliant? Well, again, you know that goes to the point I mentioned earlier on, there is no such thing as HIPAA compliant. Um, and so you don't, you never know. 
and and that's the question, right? You know, the whole point of of building any kind of security program is not to uh, eradicate any risk; it's to understand and manage the risk that you have. And so, this is always a question to do better. Um, you know, maybe an ultimate arbitrage might be whether you have a breach or whether you don't have a breach, whether you have some sort of issue. But again, you can still, you know, the average breach takes you know, between a year and a half to two years to discover. So you don't want that to be the, 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 the judgment call of whether you think you're doing enough, right? Um, what you really want to do is, um, if you can, if you effectively understand your risk, and that's again conducting the risk assessment and, and being able to quantify the risk that you take. You know, what's the likelihood of something happening? What's the impact when it does? And quantify that across your business. You want to then define that to an acceptable risk profile, right? Again, do I need to protect my my my, my public website and the information there to the same extent that I need to protect my uh, ele ele uh, electronic health uh, system, right? Clearly, one has more valuable data than the other, and you know, one has a greater risk, is, is more a, a source of attack, and has more implications. So I want to be able to do there than I did. So, and you can't do everything. So, yeah, you're never really going to know. Uh, whether you're doing enough, uh, best you can do is make sure you understand your risk and make a determination as to what you consider to be an acceptable risk. And hopefully, if you make that determination well enough, then you're you're going to avoid any incidents that are going to get you into trouble. Right, like there's no certificate that says I am HIPAA compliant, and you can't put it on your website that says like the marketing people can't say we are HIPAA compliant. You know, people have gotten in trouble for those type of things because maybe one day or this hour. You might be HIPAA compliant, but then who knows if there's going to be a breach tomorrow or something. Like even, that, you know, right? there, there are many organizations, unfortunately, that do put on their website that they're HIPAA compliant and they even have little certifications. And I even know some organizations that claim to make you HIPAA compliant as well, unfortunately. But you're absolutely right. It, it's a journey. It's an ongoing journey. Um, right. And, uh, you know, you have to make sure that you're just continually evolving and doing as much as you can at any particular point in time. You, you, there's, there's, you've never arrived at a destination. No, it's it's an ongoing battle, and uh, right, right. Um, so, so here's an, another question. Here, it's do I still need to be HIPAA compliant if I don't have access to PHI? So yeah, so go to the previous question. So again, I'm going to skip over the HIPAA compliant part again as well. Uh, again, HIPAA and PHI come hand in hand, as I mentioned earlier on. Um, you know. PHI is a term that's inextricably linked with HIPAA. Therefore, if you're not managing PHI, HIPAA does not apply. Um, and the best case of that that comes out is if you think about uh, a lot of the people that uh, organizations that manage personal health records, right? So uh, if Google has a pair, I mean, Microsoft, Microsoft uh, Health Vault uh, has been retired, they don't have it anymore. But they're a good example where if you're providing your personal health information into a private company, uh, who's managing that personal health information for you in, in some form of PHR, PHRs do not actually fall under the jurisdiction of HIPAA. Because again, going back to the definition I on, there's no provision of care or service, right? They're simply just managing your data. So again, information that's, you know, even if it's you know, sensitive, identifiable health information that's stored within a PHR um, is not PHI. Because again, PHI by definition has to be, uh, again, identifiable health information that's basically that, 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 that comes through uh, the, the delivery of care from a covered entity. So again, yeah, no PHI, no other. Okay, here's a, here's a good question that I know a lot of people um, are curious about. Um, how responsible am I for my vendor's compliance under HIPAA? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. And you know, again, a big part of what the final omnibus rule was trying to do was to try and close that loophole. Uh, again, um, prior to uh, the final omnibus rule, as a, the, the key requirement was for covered entities themselves to actually make sure that their subcontractors uh, met the requirement. And, and the responsibility, you know, completely was on the covered entity to do that. Uh, now, that said, um, the covered entity cannot do it or an organization cannot do it for their subcontractor. So uh, basically the way that this is defined right now is um, OCR have kind of come out with various different guidance and, and, and adjudications on this. What they're looking for is any organization that is subcontracting out data, you know, whether it's a covered entity to the business associate or a business associate to a, a subsequent business associate. You know, they have, it's that word reasonable again, they have to take, make reasonable steps to ensure that that uh, subcontractor is meeting or exceeding the same set of standards that you as an organization are doing. And what that basically means is, if you sign a business associate agreement with your covered entity, you have to make sure your subcontractor has signed the business associate agreement as well from you to them as well. And that business associate agreement that they're signing cannot be of lesser extent uh, in the terms of the terms than the one that you've signed uh, with your, your covered entity. Now, where it starts to become a little bit more vague is, Okay, you know, if your subcontractor signs the business associate agreement and you know that they're not able to meet that or comply with that, but they've signed the agreement, what's your responsibility at that point? And that's been a little bit murkier. Uh, OCR haven't really come out strong in terms of the, 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 the requirement for um, uh, organizations to enforce business associate agreements in terms of making sure that they're doing it. So, you, well, you're technically responsible. Uh, the responsibility for the most part uh, is a good faith effort to make sure that your subcontractor is at least telling you that they're doing the right things. Um, there's not a lot of precedent that um, OCR have come out and said, well, you should have known better, you should have known with your subcontractor. Now that said, if your subcontractor has a breach, then clearly, again, that's going to reflect badly on you as well, because again, you know, the, the, the PR aspect of it is a problem. Um, but in terms of, you know, how far you need to go to ensure that your subcontractor is doing what they say they're doing, um, again, is a bit of an open case. Okay, very good. Uh, well, we're getting close to time um, for questions. So I think if there's any follow-up questions, we'll take them um, by email. So I'm wondering, do you have any other um, advice for us or any other um, thoughts that you wanted to share with us today? Yeah, I mean, I just reiterate, I think, some of the, the key themes that I mentioned, which is, look, HIPAA, um, as, a, as, as a regulation that has great intent. And, and there's no doubt that I see organizations are very motivated with the fact that the regulation exists there and, and obviously the various different uh, state forms. Uh, but it, it really is important to, to, to appreciate that, well, HIPAA absolutely drives certain behaviors. I mean, I think the biggest impact it has is that large institutions and healthcare providers obviously are obligated to ensure that their subcontractors, again, are signing business associate agreements. And we see that from a marketing and PR perspective, these organizations want to go out and meet the requirements of HIPAA. But it isn't enough. Uh, and organizations, again, who are simply just focused on HIPAA are really missing both the intent of the regulation and are really not building a secure organization because you're never going to be able to build effective security into your organization if you, if, if you rely entirely on the HIPAA regulations themselves. And so again, I would encourage any organization again, just to look at other frameworks, uh, again, like HITRUST, like SOC2, uh, even the, 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 the NIST standards themselves, and use some sort of other framework 
to again use those uh, as, as a way to try and uh, uh, build an effective CUA program. And if you do that, for the most part, you're going to meet most you're going to meet most of the the, the, the regulations of HIPAA. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you, Grant, so much for being here today. I very much appreciate it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, attendees, for being here today as well. Please use the contact information on the screen for any questions if you have any further ones, or you can send us questions if you think of them later, and we'll forward them on to Grant and the uh, team at Ostendio. Uh, please remember your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it separately. You'll get it automatically. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.